Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with Dane Conan. This is another dueling questions that we had. He had some interesting questions for me, and I, I'd accumulated some for him. He's Dynasty Breaks, so some of my questions were about breaks and about the business of that. Hope you enjoy. Thanks, sponsors, Tops, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huck and the Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, CompC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So thanks, Dane, and here it is. You said you hired some employees. Everybody always asks me, how do I get hired? So what were you looking for when you were hiring people? Even if they're for shipping, they still need to be people that are savvy, understand the hobby, and are honest and all that. So how did you go about hiring people uh, in, into these trustworthy positions in your business that were going to be hard workers? Our head of shipping is the key to everything. His uh, name is Trevor. He does a great job for us. We actually hire people that we know that have been in the hobby before a little bit. And I've talked to breakers that say that we don't do that. We target people that don't know the hobby for sorting and shipping. They don't know a $500 card from a $5 card. Right. They just know they've got to get it to the right place. That can be a positive. But I think it's just people you trust. Trust is everything in this business. We have expensive product. And I think that's the challenge for finding employees, especially in the current job market. It's just tough. You need to pay them. I'm a big fan of hiring someone personally versus putting an ad out. If we grew faster than we have, allocation is not our only problem. I think the biggest problem would become the employees. When I hear some of the stories of some of the bigger companies in the industry and the, the fantastic growth they've had and the number of employees and how they're integrating them into the trust culture and the understanding of the nuance of the hobby, it's not trivial. The PSA has added a couple hundred people, maybe. SGC, Beckett, ComC, Golden, Heritage, all these uh, larger places that have multi-million dollar businesses have, have brought in lots of people. And it's a challenge. I agree with you. It's it's nice to know people. If you don't already know them, you can get to know them. And I, I told the story of the one time I didn't check references. Big mistake. The guy had an amazing resume. It looked like he would be, and he was a star. He just was not very honest. And I right. could have found that out if I'd have checked, if I'd have gone back one more reference. So I know you're doing that. <laughs> and you've got to have cameras to just encourage people that we do trust you, but we need to keep records in case something does happen in some mysterious way. Okay. I'm going to go back to the 90s again. What are your favorite insert sets just off the top of your head from the 90s? I know your favorite cards in general are from when you were a kid, but what are your favorite insert sets from for renaissance of that time period? Well, I mean, just off the top of my head, what it's done for me in the last, not just during the podcast, couple of years I've been doing that. But even before, it's basketball that really opened my eyes to the beautiful designs because I was alerted as if I would need to be waking up from a deep sleep. The prices that some of the Michael Jordan cards, the inserts and parallels from the late 90s have gone for are just ridiculous. We rarely saw them back in those days. Now the people that have them, when they get six-figure prices, they bring them out. And graded raw, even in an eight. So I love the PMGs, the Noise Boys, the Jambalayas. Yeah. Some of them I have on my wall. I just do one per player. What I found a few years ago when I was going back through some boxes, I realized I had a box of late 90s basketball that it was better stuff. And I got to get this graded just for the protection. So the Jordans, that's what alerted me. But then I thought, wait, I've got some football of that stuff too. And so I found I had a Barry Sanders PMG green. Ooh. I thought, well, that's a beautiful card. So it gave me an awareness of the beauty of those uh, creative designs and the metallic. They weren't trivial uh, parallels. They were enhanced parallels. They weren't just a slight tint change. There was an additional treatment that was painstaking and 
and elegant. So basketball is what opened my eyes, more so than baseball, more so than football. Before 96 or so, I won't say the parallels were trivial, but the gold medallions, even the platinum medallion, there was no platinum coming off them. They were just a little different tint. But when you yeah. have the PMGs, and especially FLIR, mainly of the arena design stuff. So those are some of my favorites, way more so than upper decker tops. No offense. I think the FLIR entities, skybox entities, they were all under one umbrella and they were just, they went out of business. They were the ones doing the really interesting stuff. And if they seemed like they just could have held back some of their own product, they'd be. Oh, I know. They were, they were doing magic. The uh, unbelievable. So. But it, it, that, so that's been fun. So I've kept a few, again, for display. Now they overdo it. But then it was the first real expansion of rainbows or of, of things that were super challenging, low numbered or perceived low. Okay. What do you recommend for somebody to get up to speed for prospecting? Let's pick baseball. Because I think there's also prospecting for basketball, but you can watch NCAA for a lot of that. Football, same thing. But baseball has minor leagues, which they didn't even play a year ago. So how are you keeping up in your, the part of the fun of it is the excitement when you pull something that, hey, this is a guy that that could be great. Hadn't done it yet. I was just getting up to speed on Bowman Draft right before we started this show. What I do and what I recommend customers do, go to YouTube, go to MLB.com, watch the first round of the draft, at least. Google some of these guys, see where they're coming from. A couple years ago, Adley Rutschman for the Orioles, a switch hitting catcher. That's interesting. There's a lot of interesting prospects and you can figure out what teams they're going to. Always advise the customers, watch the draft, read as much about the first rounders as you can, and then get a box of Bowman Draft. Look through the paper cards on the back. Tops does a great job. They put what round they were selected in, what pick they are, and they put a player profile on the cards. The best way to study is open in Bowman Draft. So fortunately, we get to open a lot of Bowman Drafts. So by about the third or fourth break, I'm starting to get a really good feel for where guys were drafted, and I'm starting to get a good feel for where they're at. Then I would tell customers, you got to have patience which is pretty hard in the hobby sometimes, sit those cards away for three years. Is it true on Bowman Draft, the breakers really have to ship all the product? Because I'm, I think a few years ago, some breakers were only uh, shipping out the big hits. The Chrome cards, what we used to do was ship out all the Chrome cards and divide them out by teams. Yeah. And then we would take the paper-based cards, which a few years ago wasn't as big of a deal as they are now. And we would give everyone a random stack. So you get a random stack of prospects from all different teams on your paper cards. So now it's gotten to the point where we've changed that. Paper cards are going for a decent amount. So we've started sorting all of it. But I'm sure there are breakers that in the past didn't ship all the paper cards to certain teams. So We put it in the shipping details in each break. We have a view details button. And we always advise people, read it. Does it say all cards ship? Does it say everyone gets a stack of paper cards? In a pick your team style break, we've done it where we make the teams a little bit cheaper. And you get all the Chrome cards for that team. And then there's a paper base spot. Someone can buy all the paper base in the product. So that's an opportunity for someone to do the break a little different. We like to have a smorgasbord of different ways we do it. And the customer can choose which one works best. Are so, all your breaks a fixed price in the sense or, or any kind of bidding for some of these, like an extra spot there? You just put a price on it and first come, first serve? Or is it? Is there uh, somebody says, well, I'll pay even more for that? We are a fixed price. We're heavy random teams. We like every spot to be the same price. We used to do uh, pick your teams a little bit more, but like in basketball, if you got the Mavericks a couple of years ago, just six, $700 for a spot. And then there's no no guarantee that you're going to recover that. So we're, we're a big fan of random teams, a little lower price of entry, a little bit less stress, a little bit more fun. Within your family of participants in your breaks, is there a lot of cross-trading once the randomized teams have been revealed? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Done after the fact or? We have a five to seven minute trading period for everyone and they take advantage of it. (laughs) Most people don't let go of the uh, Dallas Mavericks in basketball and they don't let go of the Grizzlies. But if the offer is good enough, I guess they would. That's something that not all breakers do. It is time consuming, but to allow trades and you have to verify the person, actually the person they say they are in the chat room. So we have to go through that process and everything has to be transparent as well. Yeah, I think... From what you've explained your business, you've got a sense of community in the people that are coming to your breaks the way you do it. And they know some of the other people that are regulars and they enjoy it. It's like coming to a party. And it's a show. We, we call it our show. Most of the people that watch our breaks are not in the. We've got 30 people in the break, but we may have 150 people watching and talking. We always view it as more of entertainment yeah. and try to treat it like that. What is the most impressive card collection? you've ever seen? The first one that came to mind was Barry, who was in New Jersey. He was a part owner of the Yankees and he had almost all the cards pre-80, let's say. And he had them displayed. He had all these uniform tops and things like that. And he wound up having an auction and giving a bunch of his stuff to the Hall of Fame. So I I spent the day with him going through his collection. That was fabulous. But on the other hand, I spent the day with Larry Fritch, the the first full-time card dealer. These cases of 86, 87 Fleer that all of a sudden popped up. He had amazing stuff. And his collection was two of everything because he wanted to have one at his home and then one at his other home. (laughs) And then Gavin Riley, who was one of the founders of the National, had 48 to 80 masterfully displayed. This was before the National. And I spent an afternoon evening with him. And he had all these album pages that were just meticulously laid out with all these regional cards. Then there's Frank Nagy, who was one of the godfathers of the industry that had multiple sets of 52 tops. And I got to see those a couple times at his house. I don't even know that you can rank them. They're all different. So I'm not even trying to compete. Nor am I. I just want to have a collection that I can have fun with. I've got my wall, but it pales in comparison to those others. But you know, if you go through life comparing to others, that's the beauty of Dallas, Texas. There's always somebody's got more. And always some people have less. And so just be thankful for that you have more than some and not as much as other. It'll be interesting to see what happens with some of those old collections. I want to distribute mine before I die. <laughs> I want to <laughs> enjoy. It's good to put it back into circulation when you can see who gets it. And then if they've got some questions, they can ask you. And I can say, yeah, I got this here. Or I got this there or something like that. So, yeah, I'll have to think about that. day. Nowadays, it'd just be cost prohibitive. And some of the newer collectors that have the really exotic Super expensive stuff. Yeah. And then there's a couple of guys around here that I'm not going to say their names because I don't want to out them. But there's two guys I'm thinking of that are within very close driving distance of me that have very valuable collections. If Dr. Beckett was the CEO of any of the current or future card manufacturers, what would be your stance on working together to keeping some of these iconic brands like Bowman, Prism going or... Would Dr. Beckett want to start with a clean slate and do his own thing, especially on the fanatic side? What's your thoughts on keeping some of these things going down the road? Okay. The first thing I do is I'd buy up all the printing capacity. (laughs) So then the road has to go through me. Then I go to Tops and say, I I now own Graphic Converting or Cardamundi or uh, the Great Southwest or whatever it is now. I have all the printing capacity. The road goes through me. I'd like to work with you. What do you think? (laughs) They'd say, what do we got to do? So, well, I'd like to sub-license some of your brands. I'd like to make it a win-win. 
So I'm big on win-win, but fanatics, if they control the printing presses, and you could start your own, but there's a lot of technology in printing up cards and not many printers can do it well. So if I were fanatics, I'd get all the capacity or or whoever does that. Then they can dictate terms, but I, I wouldn't be a jerk about it. I think the world wants Topps cards. There ought to be a deal out there to keep the Topps brand in some sense alive. Same goes for the FLIR. There's still some FLIR brands that Upper Deck has resurrected. There's Donruss, Leaf. A lot of those are in, in different hands than they were when they started. And some of the Panini brands have very loyal following. So I'm hoping those brands can live on. If I were a, a licensing entity or if I was a, a huge player, I'd try to make it easier for that to happen. That cooperation uh, would be rewarded by making it single licensee per sport they took away the need to cooperate or to look at each other's release calendars. Just everybody does whatever they want to do. But if it's mainly fanatics five years from now, they're going to spread it out. That's going to be good. But if they're doing that with all new brands that don't have any brand identity, I don't like that as well. So if I were in charge, I'd try to make it easy for that that to happen because I really believe that if the pie is bigger, I'm going to get a bigger piece. And the pie is going to be bigger. I don't think I'm going to get a smaller piece of the pie. I'm going to get a bigger piece of a bigger pie. And so that's two ways. Instead of trying to get a bigger piece of the pie by getting somebody else's pie, not good. Maybe somebody will do that, Dane. Maybe your question is prophetic. It may be that somebody is in that position. And if it's fanatics, I hope they will look at it and say, what's best for the long-term health of this industry? And I think having tops for 100 years, not just 70, is good. So I'm, I'm hoping that's the case. Yeah, there's a lot of excellence out there and a lot of good people that know their stuff that absolutely you would think that would be someone you'd want. People that would prevail. Every time I tried to do something to teach somebody a lesson, it backfired on me. If I did something just pursuing excellence, good things happened. So if they'll pursue excellence and not worry about beating the other guy, but just being the best they can be, I I like that strategy better. 